I feel like a big part of my role as an, as a Christian and as an artist is to just be an example of somebody that's really working their faith out and almost in a sense, giving people confidence to be vulnerable with each other as well. Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, John Pantry. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. And it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you'd like to get a free copy of the latest issue, head to the website premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Well, today on The Profile, I'm speaking to Marilyn Baker. Marilyn is one of Britain's most popular and well-loved Christian singer-songwriters. She became blind as a child, but soon demonstrated a gift for music, which took her to the Royal College of Music and then on to a teaching profession. She had a longing to communicate her faith and began writing anointed songs. And during the past 30 years, Marilyn has travelled around the world and released a number of albums. You can hear Marilyn here on Premier Christian Radio every Sunday at 4pm on Reflections, which aims to reach out to people with sight loss and other disabilities and show that they're not alone. Marilyn, welcome to the programme. Oh, thank you for having me, John. Lovely to see you. I think we've known each other many, many we years. Have. We have. I wouldn't have. like to say how many. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just on this show, we like to go back to the beginning and find out about a person's early life. What memories do you have of early family life? Well, you see, I was an only child and my mother was like 38 when she had me. That was quite old then. And um, basically everyone thought everything was fine. I was premature. They put me in an incubator because I choked actually on milk. Um, I think perhaps, um, you know, I've always loved my food. I ate it a bit too quick. But anyway, (laughs) the point is that um, when I came home, all seemed fine then. But I developed a squint. So they took me to the hospital and they kept me in. And then my mother, she always tells me the story she used to tell me, um, came on the bus just to get me home and all that. And they took her into the little private room and said, your daughter is going to be blind. Gosh. And it was a terrible shock to my mother. Mm, I mean, mm. she said she came home on the bus just crying. And my father, who um, was, uh, he owned a garage, but he couldn't cope with it at all, really. He went into a sort of depression, but it, it expressed itself in him getting completely buried in work. I think the main effect it had on me, sadly, was that he didn't believe I would achieve anything. Right, and if, right. you, if you live in an atmosphere, even when you're young, it's something like in your spirit it gets picked up that people don't really believe in you. You get this feeling that you are a disappointment. Mm. And I felt it deep inside. I didn't really know why, because I don't think I fully understood my blindness, if you see what I mean. But I knew that I wasn't quite what they'd hoped for. When when you were told um, you're going to go blind, or I don't know how that happened to you. You told me how your mother found out. What, what did it mean to you? Well, for me, you see... I was brought up in as natural way as possible. I give my parents credit for that. I mean, we lived, um, there were some woods at the back of our house and my, and my mum had a little toboggan and when it was snowing, she used to take me on the toboggan and guide it. And um, my dad, I, I wanted, I remember wanting to ride a bike because all my friends were riding bikes. Right. So we had a tricycle and dad put a little guide handle on it so that mum could kind of, Um, guide it while I was sort of peddling and and I felt quite natural and then at the age of five and that was a very early beginning I went to a boarding school for blind people and I'll just tell you this that um, my mother kept saying to me you're going to love school you're going to love school and she said but we've got to assess whether you can go to this special school and I didn't know why it was special 
really. Mm. Um, but this uh, social worker came to the house and I thought, I've got to look great for this social worker. And my mother used to go out every weekend um, to their club and she'd make herself up. She'd put her beads on and her lipstick and her bangles. So I went into the bedroom and I got all her makeup out <laughs> and I put everything on me. I mean, where I put it, I've no idea. Oh. I think somebody should have taken a picture. But um, the, the, the social worker came and I said, hold on, I'm making myself look posh, I said. So I, I, I came down and do you know, they screamed with laughter. I, oh. I thought I was looking the top sided. Oh. But really, um, they said, OK, you can definitely go to the school. Now, I went to the school and all the other children were blind. Right. But I think the first recollection of me understanding what blindness might really mean in a way, I, I knew I was blind, but it didn't seem very different because all the others were blind, you mm. see. But when I was nine, I was at home and my father uh, had a customer come to the house and um, he introduced the customer to my mother. And then he came to shake my hand and he kind of drew back and he went, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I had no idea. And suddenly I understood that my blindness was a barrier. Right. And that I wasn't going to be treated, in, in if you like, way. the same. Yeah. It was as if suddenly I was an embarrassment, right. if right. you like. And, uh, well, but, you know, they yes. they brought me up well. But as I say, um, I had this sense, you know, that then something was different. Did did they instill uh, Christian values into you as, as a child that are still meaningful and important? No, because my parents weren't churchgoers at all. I mean... Um, they got me christened and all that. Uh, and I think my mother used to read me some Bible stories from a children's Bible, which I liked. But I never understood anything about faith. And when I was 10, well, I'd started learning the oboe. I kept saying I wanted to learn the oboe. They didn't understand why, but I had that in my heart. Mm -hmm. So I learned the oboe and I went... You could say, in a way, like a child prodigy. Pro prodigy. What do you say that word? Anyway, yes. never mind about that yes. word. Prodigy, but I went yes. <laughs> uh, to Blackpool to play um, as a guest oboist, a concerto with a youth orchestra. Oh, well. Wow. At the Winter Gardens, it was. Yes. It was quite a big event. And I met a family. It was my oboe teacher's family, and they were Christian scientists. Uh -huh. And they started to talk to me about spiritual things. And this was the first contact I'd ever had with what you might call anything sort of spiritual. And I could feel they were a community. I could feel they, they were sort of love. And something deep within me wanted it. And I remember for months after wanting to find out what this was all about. Something was stirred within me. I didn't actually manage to find out about that because there wasn't any stuff in Braille, as a matter of fact, that I could read because right. I'd was i learnt Braille by then and everything. But nevertheless, something was stirred. Right, right. So at what point did you then become a Christian that must have taken another step? Oh, it, it did. Well, I went to, in the end, this only grammar school for blind people then. It, uh, now there's a lot of emphasis on integration uh, in school, so you know, but then I went to this blind grammar school, as it were, near London in Hertfordshire. And um, a friend of mine started a Christian club in the school, and she asked me if I wanted to join it. And I thought, oh, a new activity. Mm -hmm. So I went along, and she started talking about Jesus. And I thought, this is like embarrassing. I thought he died. Years ago, you know, and I right. thought he was just a famous bloke in history. But the more she talked about him, and then I went down to the cellar in like, I found this book in Braille, and it was called The Transforming Friendship by Leslie Weatherhead. Uh -huh. And I started to read it, and something deep was stirring within me. And Billy Graham came to Britain um, to do some mission or other, and we went to something. It wasn't him, actually. They took us, the school did. And do you know, all the questions I'd longed to know, something, it was as if he knew what I was thinking. Right. And at the end, he said, if anyone wants to be saved, put your hand up. And I did, I put my hand up, but we had to be whisked back to the boarding school. Right, so you couldn't So I go couldn't forward. talk to anybody, right. but I prayed the prayer. And that night, I knew something had happened. It was as if... 
you know, I'd felt quite lonely at school in a way, away from my parents. There was a lot of struggles, me trying to keep up academically. Mm-hmm. But that night I felt and knew that I would never be alone again. Right. It was like a love came deep into my heart. I, I, and I woke up the next morning, I thought, will it have gone by the next morning? Is it just like a dream? And it hadn't. Right. And I told my friends that I was saved. I used that word. Um, and they said, what do you mean? I said, I don't know, but I know I am. And they said, you can't know. I said, I can. <laughs> it, it was like, you know, and I developed from there. But then, of course, um, after that, I went on to the Royal College of Music. And I should say that it was there that my faith really took off. Right. Brilliant. D- do you ever consider that you'll have a chance to say thank you to Billy one day? I think I will. I think I, I, I know I will. <laughs> you know what, what a thought. And how has your faith changed over the years, Marilyn? I mean, how is it different now from what it was in the beginning? Many people, when they first come to faith, everything is black and white. You're dead and then, right. And then, <laughs> and then, and then as, it, as they grow, it gets a little more shades of grey. But what about you? I believe that's true for me. I mean, when I first became a Christian, um, it was a very strict regime. Um, for instance, you know, uh, all Christians then that I knew, they didn't drink anything. And I stopped having a little drink with my family. I mean, we didn't, we didn't drink loads. We just had a little shandy sometimes and stuff. And my parents sadly equated me not drinking with saying that I was holier than they were and almost equated it with the fact that I was a Christian and that this is something that restricted them. And when I remember changing my mind about that, and I said, oh, no, I'll have a shandy. And they said, have you stopped becoming a, being a Christian then? So it's amazing, isn't it, mm. how we can... But anyway, as life went on, um, I got baptised in the Spirit and um, I became like prayer secretary at the Royal College of Music. And then I went to this little home group. We were in Watford then, we lived. And this man came and prophesied into my life. I'd never really heard of prophecy either. And he said, you're going to be a musical missionary. Wow. And you're going to travel the nations. Mm. And I thought, gosh, what's that all about, you know? <laughs> and, and bit by bit, you see, I began to realise as well, and this was perhaps very pivotal for me, because my father had been very disappointed in me and he was a strict father figure, but I began to find that God although there were rules and things that I'd seen in the Bible, that he was the most incredible father and that he gave us freedom to choose. And that, you know, I remember one day sitting quietly and feeling disappointed that, again, Dad hadn't really believed that I'd achieve certain things. And it was like in my heart I felt God say, but I know what you can do Hmm. with you and me together. We're living life together. And I've got plans for you that nothing's going to stop them. Right. And, and you, it, you, you, yeah, you've you've become a kind of a, a Billy Graham in your own style, haven't you? Well, you, well yes. Uh, because your uh, concerts and events and uh, things that you do, along with Tracy, we'll talk more about that in a moment, um, are very much evangelistic. Are there are there stories where you've really seen God at work in people's lives, seen a transformation at some of those events? Absolutely. I mean. It's usually through the songs that we hear about transformation. I remember um, there was one lady and um, somebody, uh, she, she was in prison for a very serious crime, um, for murder really, but she, um, well, we won't go into what happened, but the point is she wanted to commit suicide. She felt so low and the chaplain gave her a CD. Well, well no, it was a cassette then, I suppose. And she listened to the songs and hope was born in her heart and she became a Christian. And they wrote to us to tell us and we went to visit this dear lady and we kept in touch with her and her life was really completely changed. But there are many stories like that. Um, Mm. Another man that was an alcoholic, he came through as well and lots of people began to realise that they weren't just a number, but they were loved and valued by our wonderful Heavenly Father. And I think that's what my songs bring across. So I don't know, but I suppose I'll meet many that have 
being changed and transformed. What a, what a wonderful thought, yeah. Mm. And it's not just through the music that is anointed. You are very much involved in a prayer ministry. What, what does that mean to you? What does it mean for the work that you do? Well, because of the baggage that I had in my life and the problems, um, I received a lot of prayer myself. At the beginning, it was through an, an organisation called Torch Trust, and that's what the premier... Um, Broadcast. We we do that reflections. We do that with the torch trust. You yeah. see, but they helped me a lot to get over some of this deep stuff in my life. And I realised that every one of us has baggage. I mean, we can concentrate on all that too much. But I believe the more we can get over the hurts in our lives and truly forgive from the heart, the more room there is for God's wonderful Holy Spirit to use us then as a channel. So at our retreats and the stuff we do, the conferences, we make a real point of having appointments with people who may want to share things that they would find it difficult to share right. um, with people that they know well. And then we can pray with them. And we have people coming to see us you know, on a regular basis. But the marvellous thing is when we see the change coming and they can move on. Right. I certainly needed people to help me move on and that's what we try to do now. And it, we see God doing some amazing things where people can move from one place where they've been totally stuck to a new place where they suddenly realize that they are so loved they don't need to hang on to this stuff. Hmm. Do you think um, church and society's attitudes have, have changed towards um, people with some form of disability, some obvious form like like blindness or the ability to walk? Yes, actually, at the moment, Torch Trust is doing a wonderful project called Sight Loss Friendly Church. Um, we're trying to get people to understand how important it is, for instance, not just to put everything up on a screen. Because right. if you do, the blind person misses out unless they are some way described what's happening. Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, I remember once going to a prayer meeting in a church and all the points were put up on a screen. Right. And they said, look at these points and then we'll pray about them. And somebody read me, there was too many to read me all, but, you know, um, worship and things like that, we do need to be included in, in stuff like that. So uh, torture helping with all that. But the point is, um, I believe that people are understanding in a new way that people with disabilities are not just to be looked after. We always talk about the accessible toilet or, you know, the disabled toilet <laughs> or something like that that they've managed to get into church. Well, we've got gifts. We've got the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, uh, whether we've got a disability or not. And so we need to find our place where we can be uh, not just, uh, you know, cared about, but used and develop a ministry. Perhaps my own ministry has helped people to understand the importance of that, um, that this can all happen. But, you know, it, it's very exciting now because I believe that people are understanding that the church as a whole, we've all got different gifts. Some, yes, they may have a disability, but they've still got equal value and something very important to contribute. Right. I remember talking many years ago to Johnny Erickson Tarda. Um, I worked with her for mm. a few days and she was saying how so many people have tried to pray with her and said, step out of the wheelchair and uh, all will be well and uh, God will hear our prayers. And of course, nothing had happened. Um, have you been through that experience of people insisting that they pray for you and then perhaps being disappointed themselves that, that you've not received your sight? Yes, I certainly have. I think it's this insisting on praying with you that is difficult mm. because um, I do believe God heals wonderfully today. We've seen it in our own retreats that we've run uh, where people have been healed. I haven't personally, but God's healing power is at work in our world. And that's terrific. I don't understand why, you know, not all are healed or anything like that. But you see, if you want healing, it was everyone that came to him that were healed. And I think some people have got such an excitement about healing. They don't understand sometimes that someone may not be ready or even wanting hmm. that kind of prayer. So if they get jumped on, it can even put them off. And do you think God has a, had a plan? I mean, certainly with with someone like Johnny Erickson Tada, I can see that she had an amazing ministry to other people who were paraplegic 
um, because they, you know, she could speak to them. She, they were on her level. She was on their level uh, in a way that that an, an able-bodied person wouldn't be. Has God got a plan? to use people in their disability rather than heal them? Well, I think he always uses people in wherever stage they are uh, in their disability. And, uh, you know, we don't know, do we, uh, quite why healing doesn't happen as maybe it could. But um, we know that God does use people within their disability. The only problem for me, though, is that sometimes people have said, Oh, you know, it's because you're blind, people listen to you and they love your music, you're blind. I'd like people to love my music, whether they knew I was blind or not. I'd like (laughs) them to love the ministry that I do, Yes, yes. uh, whether or not I'm blind. You you get what I mean? I I understand it has an effect. And a lot of times when Tracy and I are working together, because Tracy is Mm. profoundly deaf and I'm blind, people wonder how we can be so joyful, how we can do things together. And this does bring glory to God because it's through his strength that our ministry has developed right. together. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, that that wonderful combination of you and Tracy. I've seen you working together on, on occasion. Um, as you say, uh, Tracy is profoundly deaf. Um, and uh, how, how is it that you work together? Well, um, in about 85, I remember meeting Tracy. Uh, she came to my house for a meal because she'd met someone and um, she'd heard of me. But being deaf, she didn't really listen to sing as much. Uh, and we had a bit of fun because I'd forgot she was coming. Well, at least I knew, but I thought she'd be later. And I had had my hair dyed. And when I arrived, uh, well, at the door, I, we opened the door to her and I, I was dripping with red. Oh. And she thought I'd had an accident. Oh. Anyway, it started a good laugh. It actually was so informal the way we met. The friendship uh, began at that point. One of those immediate it connections. It was marvellous. Now, Trace was very deaf, but I had known another lady that was very deaf who died actually a couple of years before, and I'd become very close to her. So the fact that she was deaf didn't faze me right. in any way. And we got chatting, and in those days, Trace could hear a lot more. But I was looking for somebody to be what you might call a soulmate in the ministry. I'd been going for some time, I'd given up my teaching in 82, and I'd travelled a lot abroad. But I needed help in the sense, not just practical help, but a spiritual partner that would sort of take the weight with me. And she had a real prophetic gift and words of knowledge. She was only a young Christian then, but they, they you know, she started to say stuff in our meetings because in the end I said to her, will you just come and help me out because I can't find anyone to work with me at the moment and I need someone to come on the road. Right. And so she did. She said, oh, well, I'm going to do a social work thing with blind people but I will help you out for the time being but the more she spoke and the more she took part I thought gosh this girl's anointed she shouldn't be doing social work she should be out here with me and in the end um, we did uh, decide that we would work together much to the consternation of our trustees actually with two oh, really? uh, people with disabilities we then, we then needed to employ someone else who could help us both actually <laughs> and a driver and right. this is all in our new book because Tracy's doing a new book about our lives how exciting which um, will will be really exciting I think because it will talk about how we've managed to work together and all but it, it was very exciting but as the years went by Tracy became more deaf And so we had to find new ways of learning to communicate together because obviously what we're doing is vital that she does here. And now with modern technology, we use her iPad. I type with a Bluetooth keyboard and she can still read big stuff on the screen. And we also use this language that people have seen us manage, language on the hand. It's called the manual. It's for deafblind people right but um you know there's a lot of things trace doesn't always hear and i have to be up to speed and there's a lot of patience required in our communication skills mm. we take mm. quite a long time we can't just chat while we're doing the cooking right. if we want to talk about something we have to sit down and make and, a special time yeah. to yeah. communicate but yeah. i still believe that with her great wisdom that god gives her her writing ability and the love, I, I mean, she was given a name. You know how God can sort of give you a nickname? Well, I don't know whether you do, but I believe he does sometimes. Right. And her name was Daughter of Mercy. Right. Because her heart was so full of mercy. I've seen it time and time again in her. And so together we make a, a, a good 
team and right. I feel so privileged that God put me with this dear lady Tracy mm, to mm. work. Well, I've seen you working. So it's, it's a wonderful combination. You, you spoke earlier about how Torch Trust had really helped you to overcome some of the things that had been built into your life through through um, at times what was a difficult childhood. Um, and now you're a, a chairperson for Torch Trust. I am at the moment. Tell, yes. tell us more about that. Well, um, basically, you see, our organisation works across uh, denominations to help people understand the importance of, um, as I say, inclusiveness. But also, Torch produces wonderful literature which is um, sometimes very large print or audio or Braille. You see, there's not many books in Braille Hmm. that people can read. And the founders actually started Torch because they met people who'd become Christians. They became Christians and then there wasn't anything for them. And the command was, you know, feed them, you know, give them something to eat. And so we long as an organisation, to see uh, people growing in their faith. That is our passion. Right. And so I've been working with Torch and we've run holidays for people with sight loss as well. Um, and so we, we try, and, we, and there's fellowship groups. They're, they're groups across the country where if you are losing your sight and you feel you want to get together with others, to feel that connection and I suppose you could say... Uh, being built up together and learning things together, then you can join a group. Um, there are a lot around the country, uh, mm. but but um, you know there are different. Sometimes there are book groups. Sometimes it's um, right. a service. You you travel around the UK a great deal. Um, there's often much in the in the the press these days about the fact that the the uh, major denominations are losing people month on month year on year the church is official church is diminishing what do you see that encourages you well i see something very interesting where churches are really working together in a town and praying together it's very obvious to me that there are real movements going on of you know strengthening power of the holy spirit it's as if there's something that changes in the atmosphere when churches are praying and working together right Uh, there's an effectiveness that seems to come into their work when we're standoffish with each other and and kind of you know uh, don't work together somehow or other it blocks god i believe and so I think there are some very exciting initiatives going on at the moment. And, and you, you've seen this happening. You've you got a very full schedule in, in uh, the coming year, have you? Are you yes, still we're out? quite busy, absolutely. I mean, T- I tell us a little bit about some of the now. highlights. Well, um, one thing we're going to do in September, it's a real opportunity, we're going to the Christian Resources Trade Exhibition uh, to meet people in the trade because last year I produced two new albums. I hadn't actually done any uh, albums for a long time but I was full of songs, if you like, songs that I wanted to record. So I did um, a worshipful one called Joy of My Heart and then I did um, a Christmas one which around Christmas time it was a great evangelistic tool. I was able to give it away to a lot of people. So that caused some real interest and I'm glad they went well, these, these albums. And so they want me to do a concert at the Christian Resources Trade Exhibition as well. And I think Tracy's and I's new book, um, that will be uh, highlighted as well. And then, of course, we do run these retreats. And when you say retreat, perhaps it's the wrong word um, because they're sort of refreshment and renewal weeks. Um, Retreat makes it sound like they can be silent ones. Do you theme them in any way? Yes, we do, really. A lot of what we do, because in a way it's the most important thing to us, is to do with relationship with God. We call it like intimacy with God. Because the most important thing as far as we're concerned is people learning to tune in to him. Right. If people tune into his voice and learn how to really hear him through different ways, of course the Bible is the standard way, but you know what I mean. There are different ways of hearing his voice yes. and developing that relationship and conversational lifestyle with him. Then of course their lives 
will be leaning on him in a new way. And it's only as we really lean on him and experience him in that way that uh, I believe things are sorted out right. in life. So a lot of what we do is to do with teaching people uh, to come into that deeper, closer intimacy with God. And are you able ever to, to follow up with people after they've been to a, a, a Yes, a, a retreat, quite a, a few come back to us, actually. Oh, and we they? also run a little group, which is a very small one in our home. Right. Um, and uh, we have people learning to listen, learning to tune in, right. and then learning to give out right. what they hear from God. Right. Um, it's a big emphasis in our lives because the thing about it is for Tracy, she doesn't hear conversation. But okay. in her heart, she really hears the Lord speaking, oh, often in a very prophetic way. Right. You know, um, and one day she said, oh, your sound engineer, I believe our Paul is going to be leaving us in a year. And I said, how can you say that? And she'd had a dream. Oh. And, you know, it was so accurate right. what happened. And it prepared us because we had to do an awful lot of preparing uh, to manage without Paul. Right. He'd been involved in so many things and it took us round about that year to get ourselves ready for his move. Right. And right. I thought, Lord, you're amazing. That's why the gifts of the Spirit are so vital yeah. in yeah. the church yeah. today. Absolutely. So we want to help people in a personal way develop and also to see themselves. Well, there's a book I read once. Um, it was called Living as the Beloved. Mm -hmm. Beloved, it's a bit old-fashioned, that word beloved, but I believe that if we could live out of knowing that we are so beloved, our lives would be very different. So that's right. what we try to instill in our um, conferences and right. rest and renewal days. To me, that's a real passion. Do you, do you ever look back and think that week, that day, that event, that was a real highlight? I mean, what have, what have been the the top highlights of the last 40 years. I can hardly Gosh. believe it. It's hard to think of them right. You know, I've had, I remember once uh, we were at um, a centre and, um, well, a lady, I mean, this is this is amazing. She, she'd come to the uh, conference and she was really sad because she'd had a stroke and she had to give up a lot of her church work and her husband was a carer. And uh, there was a lady on my team, because one of the things we always do, we have a, a lovely team, and our team, uh, they, they vary according to what conference we do, but they're like family. And I think the fact that um, they're like family, our team, the way they work together, it brings that family feel to our conferences. And people sometimes right. say they've never felt more loved and more more looked after, if you like. All right. And I think that's special, because we're not just like, you know, distant. We love to get right alongside them. So this lady who'd had the stroke, she felt Lord was saying to her that he wanted her to step out of her comfort zone. And another member of the team said, I think, you know, he wants you to pray with the one that's got a stroke. Right. So she was very hesitant. She'd been healed herself of a stroke. Mm -hmm. And so she went to the lady and talked gently with her. This is the point, not jumping on her. And... Um, they started to pray together, and that dear lady was totally healed of the stroke. Wow. Now, the change that I saw in that lady was so exciting. I mean, she was full of it. You know, she'd been so quiet before, she couldn't stop talking. She couldn't stop telling everybody about how she'd felt the love mm. of God. Another time, we, we used to run a thing. Uh, it was called Meeting with the Father, and uh, we used to have little worship points around a room, and we used to have quiet music playing and people would kind of move around the room like we'd have a place where they could have a cup of tea uh, as if they were sitting with the father having a cup of tea. Do you know what I mean? It sounds mad yes. on the radio. But one of the things we had out there <clears throat> was a duvet. And we used to say, wrap yourself in the duvet and imagine it's God's love. Well, this lady, she did just that. And she'd felt very kind of icy she said in her heart and suddenly she started to shout I feel so hot and it's not just the duvet <laughs> and I said what's going on and she said I know that I'm loved I know that I'm loved and she'd had an encounter with the Holy Spirit right perhaps right. we'd call it soaking or whatever I don't know you know different people call these things different names but she was encountering the love of God right and and her life started to open up 
in a new way. And because we we don't run great big events, because Tracy and I couldn't cope with that, I think people do have often very personal times with us. Mm, mm. Sounds absolutely wonderful. And you will continue until you drop or until till heaven arrives? <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that. Um, I'm obviously going to slow down a bit, I suppose. But at the moment, we have got quite a lot going on. And um, as long as we're physically able to go for it, right. you know... Um, well, I'm sure we many will. many people listening will be uh, thinking, well, I hope she doesn't give up in my lifetime <laughs> because uh, I know uh, they've benefited so enormously from your ministry. Marilyn, thank you so much for talking to us. Premier Christianity magazine. Are you fed up with fake news or bored of bad stories? We think it's time for something different. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. Every month, our team publishes stories of lives transformed, testimonies, miracles, healings, and loads more good news. We're here to encourage you, excite you, and keep you up to date with all that God is doing through His church. That's why we're proud to bring you a magazine that's different. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm Marcus Jones, and in the second part of today's programme, we'll hear from Timo Soini, a former Deputy Prime Minister of Finland. Timo's a larger-than-life character who wears his faith on his sleeve – But it's that public faith which has caused him problems, not too dissimilar to that of Tim Farron here in the UK, whose faith was targeted when in public office. For his politics, he's been described as Finland's equivalent of Nigel Farage, a more moderate version, he protests when I put it to him. He grew his minor political party exponentially, leading him to a seat at the top table, We'll hear him talk passionately about seeing religion thrive in public life, and he's undefiant following his experiences. But let's start at the beginning and find out whether young Timo ever dreamed of being one of the top politicians in the country. Not at the age of eight or something. It was to be a to be a footballer or ice hockey player or a, or. A, train driver or something like so that. So what went wrong? <laughs> Merely everything. But <laughs> but at, at the age of uh, 14 or roughly somewhere, I, I, I got interested in politics. And of course, I didn't have a clue then what, what was coming. But, uh, but the appetite uh, uh, increased very rapid way. And uh, by the end, end of uh, age of 16, I joined uh, the Finnish Rural Party, so, so which was uh, a kind of a small, small peasant party uh, at the time, and um, so that got started. So s- some people enter politics because they want to make a difference. Some do it because they want the power. What motivated you? Actually, uh, it was the person of the uh, then uh, leader of the Rural Party who was a man called Veiko Venamo, who was very active after the Second World War in politics in the Centre Party, which was the agrarian party of Finland. And, and he he is the man who settled all the uh, migrants from the areas when what we lose lost to Soviet Union uh, in the war. Uh, roughly a half a million Karelian people had to leave the premises and come to Finland, and and Veiko Venamo was in charge of the office to 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 deliver new homes and and new premises for those people. And he was a very charismatic guy. And Finland, even so, we had five hundred thousand Finns uh, having left their uh, homes. We didn't have a single refugee camp in Finland. Uh, but he got um, he got trouble in the center party because there was a power struggle, and he left and founded a party of his own, uh, the peasant party. And and my background on the mother's side is the family peasant family with eight children and uh, seven cows. So that is the background uh, 
kind of philosophical background for that. I'm a city boy myself, but uh, on the mother's side, uh, it started like this. So on the faith side of things, um, you were originally a Lutheran in yeah. Finland, which is, I guess, the, the main denomination of yes, Christians. Yes, that's right. The main domination, uh, roughly 80, 89 80-90% were Lutheran, now it has synced for something 70-72 or something. I was baptized Lutheran and my family was Lutheran uh, by origin, yeah. But that changed and you converted to Catholicism, tell Ye- us about that. Yes, it, it did. Uh, in the middle of uh, 1980s, I, I, I have been Christian all my life and um, certain active as well, but I'm a conservative <laughs> On the conservative flank, and I got angry when the women were ordained to be priests. So it, I, I went uh, in a way in the limbo situation for a while, and and then uh, uh, John Paul II was uh, was nominated to be the Pope, and uh, uh, he was very principled person and very holy person, I think, and I got uh, in a way carried away. A little bit by him, and then uh, I went to Ireland by interrail, uh, interrailing, interrail plus ship, and and I was was there uh, there with my friends, and I visited all the churches, and my friends sometimes if it was church beautiful enough, they came to to look the architecture or something, and then I went to Killarney, uh, Saint Mary's Cathedral, and it was. It struck me, and and uh, I went there with my friends, and uh, and a friend said that let's go further, well, let's go to the lakes and so forth. And I decided to come back the uh, next morning just by myself, and there was an Irish nun there, and we talked a lot, and and I I got very strong experience and feeling also there by myself. And the nun said to me that you are going to be Catholic, and uh, within a one and a half year. This uh, did happen, and 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 uh, I I converted. But uh, converting um, in Ireland wouldn't be such a big thing because there's so many Catholics no, in Ireland. No. But in Finland, not in so Finland, much. in Finland, it is, and, and 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 I'm rather happy that it hasn't been made very easy, so that you cannot just uh, go inside and uh, sign the letter or something like that. Uh, you have to go to the so-called course when in due course of time, seven, eight months, there will be teaching uh, uh, once in a three weeks or roughly so uh, about what is uh, Catholic doctrine and what is this and that, uh, just to, to make sure that you are knowing what you are doing and what you are committed to. And it was it was good. And, and of course, when you do a thing like that, it's... It's very, how would I say, uncommon uh, that uh, that people are changing their denomination. And uh, but I did it, and and I have been practicing Catholic since. Faith and, and politics. Um, a lot of people say those two things can't mix. How did you find being a, a Catholic in a, in a political career? Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's very strange that uh, sometimes these denominations are raising a lot of lot of feelings and emotions uh, everybody knew when I, I I was elected to be uh, vice chair of the rural party as early at the age, at the age of 26 uh, and uh, this happened 1989 so everybody knew more or less that I'm a Catholic in all Protestant country and it didn't matter at all and I have been voted four times in the Finnish parliament, once in the European parliament, five times to the local city council, and everybody knows, but it it didn't matter. And even some of my friends who are, to be modest, agnostic uh, in the same suburbs what we've grown up, they said that we don't care about your convictions, we care about you. And, uh, And so I haven't lost votes to be openly uh, Christian, and and that has also encouraged. So I didn't have to compromise. Even if people disagreed, they said, "Okay, that is your personal uh, matter." And and if you have tax policy right, and if you have education policy right, or whatever, they didn't uh, uh, they didn't matter. But it's it, there are certain issues which are hard issues, 
and uh, and uh, and uh, it's okay to be a Christian as long as you don't say anything about sin or something some uh, perceptions like that. And maybe we'll talk about this in, in a second, but the UK is certainly going through a, a period of that with a number of uh, cases. Um, but when you were in uh, your role, faith did become um, uh, a problem. Um, mm. You had a situation where you were um, in Canada um, yeah. carrying out um, uh, duties for uh, the government. Yeah. Um, talk, us, talk us through that and how that problem came about. That uh, happened uh, in May 2018. I was on official visit to Canada uh, as a foreign minister of Finland. And uh, so it happened that... Uh, uh, at uh, at night, I I used to uh, enter and, and attend to masses, uh, and I went to the Catholic church, and there was no mass there, but there was a leaflet telling that uh, next uh, next night there will be a candlelight vigil in in the monument of uh, of uh, some kind of monument outside and uh, uh, for the aborted uh, children and at the nine o'clock in the evening and uh, I decided and I said to my state secretary who was with me that uh, whether tomorrow if we have time after the commitments uh, we shall go there and so we did and there was a candlelight vigil uh, there was uh, candles burning and and young females were talking about uh, their lives and challenges and worries and and how they have kept their children and, and tough tough uh, tough stories and uh, then we light, light the candles for the aborted children and my state secretary Samuli Virtanen took the picture about us the kind of selfie about us and uh, and uh, we we put that into twitter or he did he asked me permission to do that and uh, Nothing did happen for roughly two weeks until the hell broke loose when uh, the tabloids find out that, okay, you have been in Canada on an official visit, even outside the hours of official uh, program, uh, you have been uh, participating in the so-called anti-abortion event, even though that was a vigil. And uh, then uh, there was a lot of criticism in the press. Uh, people made uh, the writers, uh, female writer Elina Hirvonen, make, uh, made a, com uh, a complaint. There were uh, several others to the Chancellor of, of Justice, whether I have broke the law as a Minister for Foreign Affairs. And there were several... Uh, accusations for Chancellor of Justice to investigate whether it is against the law or whether I have violated the agreement of Vienna and so forth and so forth. And, and of course, when uh, Chancellor of Justice got those complaints, he must investigate the case. And, and the, the, the charges or the questions were really tough one and also very juridical one. And I had to answer for them uh, uh, in fairly short notice, maybe two, three months' time. And I did, and I, I got help, which was very, very good. Uh, there is a story that uh, I got an email from a lady. I baptized her, the Alice of Wonderland, who said that she could help me with the legal issues about this. And... Uh, and uh, it was uh, he he she didn't know the Finnish language but she was familiar with uh, with Finland being there for some time and then the whole accusations or the questions were translated to her her team and and other people assisted me and 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 gave a package of extraordinary debt maybe some 10 pages of all court cases throughout why it was not appropriate to criticize me on any way on these issues. And this organization was ADF uh, uh, Alliance Defending uh, <coughs> Freedom, uh, Religious Freedom. 
And it was a great help because it was twifold process. The first was this kind of juridical process because it is a matter of utmost seriousness if the minister breaks his bow to the state. And uh, so it was the decision was given by the Chancellor of Justice 18th of September uh, and uh, he cleared my reputation. He said that uh, after investigations Mr. Soini hasn't break any law. And then there was a comma and but. He would have or should have been more precautious in a way that not there wouldn't be any chance that his official role or his personal beliefs could be mixed in any way and so forth. Of course, this wasn't something he should investigate. It was just to investigate whether I have broken a law or not. And I didn't. But of course, then there was a political process, which was very harsh because I have openly uh, expressed my pro-life views concerned uh, also when there was a referendum in Ireland and our uh, Argentinian Senate uh, chamber to to these issues. And uh, the opposition uh, uh, rose the vote of confidence personally against me in the Finnish parliament. And of course, there was also people on the centre-right government, which I represented, the coalition government with three parties. There were quite many who criticised my views that I shouldn't do this. And uh, and uh, and there was not many people, not many politicians uh, uh, supported me vocally, uh, but there was one, Paivirasan, who, who is now herself in trouble, but we went to the vote of confidence, which I did win in the Finnish parliament by, by, by 100 vote against 60, and then there was 18 ab- abstention or something like that. Quite a many MPs said to me in the corridors, Timo, don't worry, we, wo- we will vote for your confidence, but we won't say anything. So I did go quite a hellish uh, uh, Bro, uh, times for a few months because uh, press was especially uh, hostile and and because if you are pro-life person in in Finland, it is very tough times because abortion is virtually free on on social grounds and so forth. And if you dare to say that I'm pro-life, I I believe the sanctity of life you will be criticized. And even if you are in the position like deputy prime minister, premier, I wasn't at that moment anymore. I was first two years, but I had been, and I was the minister for foreign affairs, which is the top three rank in Finnish government, minister for finance, premier, and then uh, this is the kind of triangle. And uh, and it was heavy criticism in the press. But I, I, I did go to the programs, I give interviews, and I said that this is my personal conviction, this is freedom of speech, this is a freedom of religion, I don't give in any of this, I won't apologize, I won't regret. And so I did win both cases, but it was it was very nasty process and also the people, the family and the closest friends and parents and everything, it was nasty, but uh, but I w- I'm, I'm happy now afterwards that I went it through, but... Uh, wouldn't recommend. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't recommend. Well, I'm sure you're aware of the situation of Tim Farron here in the UK. Yeah, yeah. So a very similar case in which um, uh, he was repeatedly questioned by the media over his views about homosexuality. He's not the only person, though. We've had a number of politicians, um, and increasingly on the the Catholic pro-life side. Um, yeah. Uh, we've had a, um, a politician called Rob Flello who was stopped from standing in the election last year. And um, one of the leader, um, one of the hopefuls in the leadership race for the Labour Party, has recently been criticised for her pro-life um, views as well. Um, this isn't a, a case of just Finland. This isn't a no. case of just the UK. It seems to be increasing. Um, what would you say to those who have kind of traditional biblical beliefs on things like sexuality, on things like um, uh, life issues? What would you say to those who are looking at this situation of politics yeah. and thinking, I'd love to be in politics, but it's not yeah. for me. I can't do it. Uh, I very, very strongly encourage you to 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 go there and take the heat and uh, and 
uh, and be be there because you are supported uh, by by much much many people than you can even imagine and uh, and we cannot get rid of the great principles of our democracy which guarantees the freedom of speech and freedom of religions if we voluntarily give in those values we make a huge mistake but be also aware that you will be hit hard and uh, and uh, that is why because there, there is going to be twofold processes it's criticism what is the other thing that you are bullied and you are uh, in a way criticized but then there is this other one which i'm very worried is this so-called hate speech legislation and, and to make your your uh, uh, opinions in a way criminal which which must be tackled and that is why we also need these cases and need publicity even though it is very harsh for the people attached and connected but otherwise you will be buried in silence and this cannot this cannot happen this shouldn't happen and uh, <clears throat> and uh, and uh, i also encourage in that sense that you can uh, uh, end up with quite a strange bedfellows on this because there are people who are defending freedom of speech on the different flanks of the society even if you don't agree with there can be hard left there can be hard right on the issues you don't believe and you don't share their views but one of the greatest uh, uh, conception of uh, freedom of speech was like uh, George Orwell said uh, in 1984 that The, the the freedom is also that you can say something which offends somebody. That is also freedom. Do you see? Are you, are you hopeful? Do you see light in the, the situation that things are going to change in due course of time? If we are persistent, if we are pray, brave enough, but otherwise, the, now we are going very gross way to the very bad direction because those issues are raising raised in every country virtually and and. Uh, to, uh, just these two, two particular things, uh, which is pro-life use, and then if you are a believer in the so-called traditional marriage between one man and a, one woman, which is also my stand, and uh, and they try to make that uh, in a way old-fashioned, even even illegal, and uh, and that is very very essential part of the Christian doctrine. It cannot be compromised. It would seem to me that our society is growing more and more divided, not just about faith issues. Yeah. You've only got to look at Brexit here in the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have two people on two sides um, or, of an issue. And it's not just the case that I can now just disagree with you and that's fine. But if I disagree with you, you are now my enemy. Yeah. And I think this, if we bring in this kind of freedom of speech things, we bring in the, the political issues... It's a very um, difficult society that we're setting up. It is indeed, and it's it's on the longer run. It's also dangerous. If it's uh, so far so good, it is. If we disagree, if we make a good paddles of conversation and let the best uh, argument win and whatever, and that's a democracy. That's a freedom of speech and freedom of religion and everything else. But if you if you really go to that far that if you don't agree with me you not only disagree but you hate me or I hate you or we don't have uh, any kind of mutual respect that will end to the very very dangerous position and divides a nation and divides nations and families and, and friends and uh, and uh, and that is that is now the direction we are going and uh, and also Uh, the language is very important in politics. I know it by, <laughs> when I was there so many times. Now we are banning the certain words. Uh, of course, it's not. Uh, it's not. Uh, it shouldn't be a, a way of sport to say something offended. But if we are, for example, with you uh, argumenting, and if I say something which I say that this is challenging, um, Marcus, in, in that sense, and if if you feel offended. If you think yourself that I said something which offended you and 
and I didn't mean that, but if you feel that, then I'm guilty. This, this, this is very, very dangerous path to go into, and this so-called identity politics is, is, is very dangerous, and this will divide not just the people, but also the spaces and the areas. They will be then said that, okay, you can speak that way in the church, but you cannot wait this in, in the marketplace or in the pub or in the public place, in the, in the internet. And, and, and that cannot be compromised. And, and this, is, uh, this is really dangerous direction where to go. And uh, there are minorities of all kinds of minorities who also should be protected but there are also minorities which are very militant who want to dictate you what you should think and what you should believe or not to believe and uh, and the, the the great thing about freedom is that we can choose what to believe we can choose our leaders and if we don't like them we can vote them out I can't let you leave without uh, talking about your third passion. We talked about faith. We talked about politics. <laughs> we have to talk about football. Now, um, let us. Let me just soak this in for a second. From Finland, support Millwall. Talk us. Talk <laughs> us through that. Yeah, the story be behind this uh, is goes as far as at the year of 1976, uh, there was uh, a game alive in in Finnish telly. Millwall playing uh, Luton at uh, Old Den, 13th of November 1976. <laughs> and I saw that game in my own telly. Barry Kitchener scored, Seisman scored, uh, Brisley scored, and I think, uh, was it Phil Walker? And, and, and since that moment, because they were playing in Finnish colours, they have blue shirt, fried shirts, and lion emblem crest on, 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 on the on the place of the heart and that is when it started and it took me nine years to get into the old den and see the games and i have seen coming uh, since that more or less uh, maybe two three times a year you've been listening to the profile that was former deputy prime minister of finland timo soini in conversation with me marcus jones for more great interviews download the profile podcast at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile